0: that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking.
1: In the years after World War II, a conflict that killed at least 70 million people, scientists debated this question. Was violence an aberration of human nature or the trait that lay at the heart of it? It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Erica Milam talks about the scientific search for human nature, a project that captured the attention of paleontologists and anthropologists. Milam is a professor of history at Princeton University. She's the author of *Creatures of Cain: The Hunt for Human Nature in Cold War America*. Erica Milam, thanks for talking with me.
2: Oh, I am delighted to be here. I've I've listened to this show for years now. Years, God, let, year let me and start a, half. To get a year and a half, <laughs> decades. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Maybe I'll leave that in. Uh, uh.
2: So, uh, yes. So I've listened to the show a lot, and it's delightful to actually chat with you.
1: Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that a lot. So your book focuses on ideas about human nature and how they change after World War II. But I, I do know that this was a huge subject of big interest from the Enlightenment through the Victorian era with Darwin and I was wondering if there was any way you could you know, kind of paint in broad strokes some of the ways people thought about human nature you know, in this earlier period of time and, and how that shifted. I know that's asking you to do a lot, but, but I don't know. Are there any broad generalizations?
2: Yeah. Uh, I think what I would say to begin with is that you're absolutely right. These questions of what does it mean to be human and what is unique about human nature, Mm. are questions that people have wrestled with for aeons. Certainly the idea that humans are, on the one hand, unique from all other animal species, and yet on the other hand, that there is something about what it means to be human that we can learn from thinking with animals or thinking against animals, that both of these are tropes that have been uh, common throughout history, there's nothing mm. new in the post-war era about using animals as a as a way of conceptualizing what is unique or uh, what is shared about human nature. And at the same time, also questions of are humans somehow innately violent or are we innately good? That these also are long-standing debates in human history. What I find really fascinating about the post-war period is that you can think of it as the culmination of two separate, really long-term trends in history. One of them is the idea that humanity itself has a deep past. And so there is something about the history of humanity that is taken as important for understanding humanity in the present. And not as a moral exemplar, but as a human nature was created in some fashion, and then we became human. So what does that process mean? And how developmentally do we get from A to B? Mm. And then the second one is the idea that if there is this trajectory of humanity from A to B, are all humans in the present actually the same? And so in the post-war era, these two come together in interesting ways, because not only is there this a historical trajectory that people are extremely invested in, but they're also invested in the idea that all humans share the same nature, And that Hmm. is as a reaction to um, evolutionary theory and to eugenics and thinking about questions of racialized differences and wanting to push back against the eugenic conceptions of many different human natures from the early part of the 20th century.
1: Yeah. One of the things I found surprising about your project was when you pick up this story after World War II There are a number of prominent scientists who put forward the idea that overall human nature is a positive thing, that there's the intellect of the human species and it expresses cooperation and there's this capacity for invention and lots of organization. And it strikes me as kind of ironic that this would take place in the years after the most violent conflict in human history, World War II. Could you talk about that?
2: Sure. It's interesting. I usually get this question in a different way, mm. which is to say that people find it easy to understand why people would be obsessed with aggression during the Cold War and yeah. after Vietnam and after the highly visible uh, civil rights the struggle for civil rights both within the United States and for colonization and independence abroad, so this is sort of the flip of that then. Why is it that, after a a very violent moment in human history, that people would come together and really conceptualize humanity as being uh, fundamentally cooperative and yeah, I think that there's both of these reactions are possible after or in the context of violence, and Mm. that one vision is intended to be redemptive Mm. and is an attempt to understand violence as something that has happened, but that we have recovered from. So thinking of, of violence in human history as moments of crisis, where you have a peaceful coexistence for some kind of long period. And then there's a violent crisis, and then there is the resolution to the crisis. And that's a really different way of understanding what violence means than by the time that you get to the 1960s and 70s, people are looking back and saying, no, no, those long periods of, of stasis, those are violence. And what is remarkable are the momentary glimpses that we have of peace along the way.
1: Yeah, I was thinking that um, the scientists that you talk about in this period who are, in a sense, the positive ones about human nature, like uh, Theodosius Dobzhansky, who's an um, evolutionary biologist, or Lauren Isley, the anthropologist Margaret Mead, They're they're talking from all of these different disciplines. And I was wondering whether there was a way in which it wasn't just redemptive, but maybe there was a little bit of professional guilt involved here. I mean, I, I don't know what you think about that. But like, you know, you mentioned eugenics. Uh, that's a pretty dark history, as well as anthropology, people who've been typing different communities of human beings as having different natures. And anyway, so do you think that in a way, uh, there's some guilt here too? Or? I don't know.
2: When people write about it, that's not something that I get. If anything, there is anger. Mm. Many of the scientists, like Lauren Isley, for example, very much wanted to serve in World War II and was not able to. And then felt deep personal connections to people who had served and wanted to be able to honor them. And also a new vision of the world that made it clear that World War II was not necessary. Not that it wasn't necessary, but that, that other human beings should never be treated in that way. And for Mead and for Theodosius Dobzhonsky, the way that they look at the world also is it is one of demarcation, but it's one of demarcation where they want to make clear that other ways of thinking about humanity that are based on conceptions of biological difference and hierarchy are wrong.
1: Mm. You mentioned that, I mean, one of the things I find kind of interesting about your project is that it is itself a kind of scientific debate, but it also weighs in on other debates, specifically theories of human evolution. And this is something I never thought of, but you, you talk about the way that there's this big question of whether the human evolutionary tree is kind of a, a tree that moves forward with lots of branches that die out, mm-hmm. or is it more like a bamboo tree where there are groups of humans, but it's it's kind of linear uh, mm-hmm. over t- over long periods of time. And that you say, in fact, the, the question of whether human evolution is a bush or a bamboo tree really connects a lot with how people think about human nature. So could you describe that?
2: Sure. So in the 1950s and the early 1960s, the dominant way that people thought about human evolution was through a series of competitive exclusions where there's one group of hominids Mm. who are existing in a particular time and place. And then there's a separate group that comes as a result of evolution, and that those two groups then compete wherever they interact, but only one can survive. And so very quickly, when there is evolutionary novelty, that novelty replaces the older form so that you have a series of tight changes that result in what looks like linear evolution of a single population over time, but is in fact a series of small speciation events. And so that gives you a sense of progress over time, and it gives you a sense of human nature as essentially all humans on all human ancestors on Earth at any one moment probably looked a lot like each other, except for these moments of overlap. And the kind of evolutionary picture that people have today is much more of this bush of there being many different kinds of human ancestors that coexisted all at the same time. And so whereas the first you can think of as a, and people in the 1950s did, conceptualized it as a kind of unitary human evolution in which races didn't really exist within this larger column and Now there's a conception of that we might think of human ancestors as representing broad diversity within human ancestry.
1: So, do you feel that the the desire for scientists, many scientists, to kind of embrace this idea of a single human nature that links us all actually shaped their? I guess, their enthusiasm or commitment to this idea of a pretty linear human evolution? I mean, do you think it's that strong?
2: I think that in the way that they were conceptualizing human evolution in the 50s, it made a lot of sense for those two to go together.
1: Mm. So I had this journalist, Carl Hoffman, on a few weeks ago, and um, he was talking about his fascination with Western travelers mm-hmm. like uh, Bruno Manser and Michael Rockefeller, who uh, you know, go to parts of the world where there are unknown or relatively uh, little known tribes of people. Yes, And I found it interesting that Michael Rockefeller plays a, a role in your story too. Although you, are, you're actually, you actually put him to, to different ends in a way. I was wondering if you could talk about what happens to Michael Rockefeller and how it fits into your story.
2: Michael Rockefeller was an anthropologist who was participating in a very large research project in Papua New Guinea that was headed up by Robert Gardner. And the project in Papua New Guinea was a multi-person effort where there were photographers and there were people who were cultural anthropologists and there were people who specialized in the material culture of the area. And he was one of that group of people. Mm. And he, after that project was over, stuck around in order to do some traveling on his own and then ends up having an accident along with two other people that he was traveling with and dying. Michael Rockefeller's disappearance and then his death turned into a media sensation event. Yeah. And people in the American press pick up on the fact that this famous young man passed away in Papua New Guinea under what appear to be uh, suspicious circumstances. And all of a sudden, people are fascinated by Papua New Guinea and what does it mean to uh, live in Papua New Guinea, to study the people in Papua New Guinea. And in the way that many uh, Americans react to foreign news of this kind, there's a lot of, of hype and concern that maybe he had been eaten by cannibals, that he had been eaten by crocodiles or vicious animals that lived in the water Uh, When his boat capsized and and he tried to make it to shore, uh, something horrible had happened to him. And it was, in fact, the the unknown aspect of what had happened that drove a lot of the media frenzy.
1: Yeah. And how was uh, Rockefeller's fate? How does that get pulled into your story of human nature?
2: The group that he was working with produces a volume called Gardens of War. And in the nineteen sixties, this was a an interesting take because the people that they were studying, the Dani, participate in small wars on a regular basis. And Robert Gardner was interested in understanding what war looks like from the perspective of a community that assumes it will never end.
0: Mm.
2: And this idea that war might be something without end fed into very much these ideas that humans, that all humans are by nature aggressive and that human history has been characterized more by conflict than by cooperation. And it forms only one piece of the puzzle. So in the 19th, 50s and well into the 1960s, the way that people conceptualized human nature was a combination of paleoanthropology, cultural anthropology, and then increasingly also animal behavior. There's a desire to to understand scientifically, if they assumed that human nature was this unitary thing, then how would you figure out what did it mean to be human? And one answer was to look at the paleontological record Mm. and to think about the ways in which the bones and skeletons that were available, what did they say about the way that human ancestors lived and acted in the world? There were fewer fossils then than there are now. And there were crucial gaps in the fossil record between species in the past, human ancestors in the past that looked much more simian and then human ancestors that really look pretty human. But so this gap in the middle was something that was the crucial moment, you might say, when it felt like humans became human in the fossil record. And so people were interested in triangulating different forms of evidence in order to understand what that transition might have looked like. One way of answering that was through cultural anthropology and thinking about the ways that communities of people who are hunters and gatherers today potentially still live in a way that might resemble what early human ancestors had lived like. That formed one piece of evidence, but increasingly over the course of the 1960s, for many cultural anthropologists, it begins to look a little suspicious to use a modern community to stand in for what humans might have acted like in the distant past. Mm. And so animals increasingly became a way of thinking about what social behavior looks like before humans became human. Using animals like chimpanzees with Jane Goodall and then before then baboons looked less racist.
1: So you are mentioning the animal behavior work of Irvin DeVore with baboons and then with Jane Goodall. DeVore, who probably most of us, I didn't know who he was uh, before I read your book, but uh, certainly not as famous as Jane Goodall.
2: Nobody's as famous as Jane Goodall. (laughs) <laughs> yeah,
1: right, right. DeVore thinks that it's really baboons that are critical to this understanding of of human nature or a shift towards the human. Could you talk a bit about his work?
2: Absolutely. DeVore is interesting because he takes very seriously the idea that if you want to triangulate this answer, how was it that early human ancestors might have lived? That the crucial piece of information that's going to allow you to do that. The crucial comparison that is going to allow you to do that is to look at a species that lives in an ecologically similar zone to what we think early humans might have lived in. And so baboons, as a savanna species that predominantly forages in the open savanna, but then will retreat to safety of trees in times of danger and also cooperates in order to fend off danger, was a kind of social organization that DeVore thought might closely resemble what early human ancestor might have been
1: like. And then Jane Goodall in the late 60s begins her work on chimpanzees was she interested in these issues of human nature primarily or was that was that something that kind of rolled out of her work
2: so goodall goes to gombe in 1960 and the first national geographic article About her work comes out in 1963, and then the first documentary about her work is in 1965, which is Ms. Goodall and the Wild Chimpanzees. If regular Americans were not familiar with her work because of National Geographic magazine, the National Geographic television special made a huge impact.
1: Oh yeah, I remember that.
2: It's really, it's a fascinating documentary. And one of the things that the documentary makes very clear is that the way that people normally encounter chimpanzees is through commercials or movies in which chimpanzees are dressed up as clowns or as actors. And they're sort of, they're like pets in these kinds of ways. They're domesticated. And her work is presented by National Geographic as being an antidote to all of that. And to thinking about what chimpanzee behavior is like in the wild, this idea of the behavior of wild chimpanzees uh, was fascinating, and and it was nobody really thought that it was something that was profitable for an anthropologist to do or for a student of animal behavior to do uh, because it's so difficult. If you if you're studying baboons. Baboons are fairly easy to study because most of their behavior is in the open savanna. Chimpanzees are much more difficult. They live in the forest and they're extraordinarily shy of people. So if they come across a new smell, a new person, they will leave. Hmm. And she went and it took her years in order to get to the point that the chimpanzees were willing to tolerate her presence and therefore behave in a way that we would call normal, as opposed to these sort of fear flight responses. So if you're a if you are a student of anthropology, you're not going to go spend potentially three to five years in the field studying a species that you may never get a dissertation out of.
1: God. So yeah.
2: Goodall is interesting because she comes in with a high school education. With a deep interest in chimpanzees and in understanding the behavior of animals in the wild. And she obtains a position with Leaky, who eventually gets a grant so that she can go to Gombe and study these chimpanzees. And within Once she finally gets to the point that the chimpanzees are acclimatized, she realizes very quickly that chimpanzees are doing two different kinds of what she calls tool manufacture. One of them is is they're taking these long branches and stripping the leaves off of them so that they can use the branch to fish for termites. And the second is they are taking larger leaves and chewing them up partially so that they can act as sponges and then using the masticated leaves as a sponge to absorb water and then to drink from the sponge so that they don't have to go down and lick up the water with their face really close to the ground. And so this for her represents really deliberate tool manufacture, which was something that people had previously associated with human behavior and only human behavior. So this was groundbreaking work. And as a result of that then, she becomes very interested in thinking of the chimpanzee behavior as a way to understand what it means to be human. The chimpanzees come to occupy a very different kind of space than the aggressive interactions that characterize behavior of baboons on the savanna. And they appear to be much more cooperative they share and they are deliberately using tools in this way that makes them look a lot more like potentially human ancestors.
1: Huh. Yes, that's so interesting. In the 60s, during the period of time when Goodall's working, there's a shift that begins to take place about this issue of human nature and the rise of what is called the killer ape theory. And there's a variety of scientists that you profile in this, Robert. Ardre, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Conrad Lorenz and Desmond Morris, all of whom are, are scientists, but they also publish popular books on the subject. What's the overall shift in thinking that happens during this period of time from a kind of positive view of human nature to one which is more violent?
2: So this is all, it overlaps both with what's happening with Goodall and also with the Michael Rockefeller story and what's going on in in Papua New Guinea and the Robert Gardner Gardens of War. So these three books come out within 18 months of one another. In English, Robert Ardrey publishes The Territorial Imperative in 1966, and he is trained as a playwright with Thornton Wilder at the University of Chicago, and then goes on to star, sorry, not to star, to to write Hollywood scripts. And he's most famous for writing the screenplay for Khartoum, uh, for which he is nominated for an, uh, an Academy Award in 1966, but does not win. And he publishes territorial Imperative. It's his second book. The first one was African Genesis, which was published in 61. But scientists didn't really pay a lot of attention to it. 66 and Territorial Imperative begin to gain a lot more energy and attention, in part because Conrad Lorenz's On Aggression is translated into English that year as well. And then in 1967, Desmond Morris publishes The Naked Ape, which provides more fuel for the fire. And the version Mm. of human nature described by these three men is fundamentally dependent on comparisons with other kinds of animals. And there's much less emphasis on paleoanthropology, and there's much less emphasis on cultural anthropology. And so it begins to create a version of human nature that is evolutionary, but is evolutionary in a comparative sense rather than evolutionary in a longitudinal deep history sense.
1: And violence within their work is not necessarily a bad thing, right? right. I mean, it, yes. Yeah. Could you talk about that? How is violence seen as, let's say, a positive uh, force?
2: Well, violence is something that is empowering. It is something that creates order in society. And so in the way that Audrey and Lawrence write about dominance hierarchies, the violence that happens is of two kinds, we might think of it. One is the little scrapes that happen between individuals of the same community. As they work out who is the biggest and the strongest and what the de facto hierarchy of the community is. And one of the ways that I think about this is not in terms of fights to the death, but just little scrapes. And the dominance behavior is evidence when, for example, two individuals approach a water hole at the same time. One of them automatically gives way and the other one then drinks first. And so that's the manifestation of what people studied as dominance hierarchies at that time and they're interested in understanding why is it that some individuals always defer to others and how does that get negotiated hmm. so these small internal conflicts are one thing but then there are conflicts between groups and these conflicts are more dangerous and are often more violent and so there yeah. there's this contrast between the internal cooperation of the group once this hierarchy is established and then deep rivalries that exist between different communities over things like fights for territory and foraging uh, area for the community. So that's sort of how violence can be good, is because it allows you to defend against predators, it allows you to control more territory, et cetera, et cetera. And it actually, once the dominance hierarchy is worked out, it cuts down on the amount of violence within the community.
1: Yeah. One thing I really think is cool about your book is that you um, you really treat, let's say, the kind of work that scientists are publishing in academic journals on the same level as the kind of work that they're publishing in popular books, and also a kind of broader um, conversation about these themes as they exist in popular media. So for example, you have a discussion in your book about uh, the movies, the Planet of the Apes movies, uh, especially the first one. I was wondering if you could talk about the ways in which this movie, for example, picks up the theme of uh, human nature, because it, probably a lot of people, uh, I mean, I've seen them all, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, probably a lot of people haven't seen the original one. So could you talk about that for a bit?
2: One of the things that I I do do in the book is to try and really pay attention to a lot of what people in the past have referred to as popular science or the deeply popularized science that appears in movies. And I think it's really important. I think it's important because most Americans are not reading scientific papers. And so Mm. if you want to understand how and why and when broader conceptions about what it means to be human and the place of science are changing within American culture, you have to look at these sources as well. Mm. So I call the publication of materials for an audience that includes not just trained specialists, but other people's as well, colloquial science. And I try to avoid the question of popular, because popular implies a kind of also a hierarchy, but but a, a, con- a continuum between professional science and then popular science. And one of the mm-hmm. things that I find fascinating about books by Audrey, Lorenz, and Morris in this time period, for example, is that they're being read by college students. They're being read by students in the first two years of their PhD program in anthropology or animal behavior, and they're really being debated. So there's a way in which these books are reaching both scientists' and members of the general public who are not trained in the sciences. And so it's. I think they're really important sources, even though they later get dismissed as popular science, I think it's important to take them seriously in their own right. And the farthest reaches of colloquial science and then the popularization of these ideas, we can see in movies like Planet of the Apes and 2001 A Space Odyssey and Straw Dogs by Sam Peckinpah and other kinds of films that were that were popular during the time period. Oh, and of course, A Clockwork Orange by Stanley Kubrick.
1: Yeah, right. So-
2: Planet of the Apes, which is the one that you asked about, is a wonderful 1960s heroic film starring the broad-chested Charlton Heston (laughs) with a profile of an eagle, I believe Mm. was the way that one reviewer referred to him. And it's a movie in which there has been, I'm going to give it away for people who have not seen (laughs) the movie, there has been a nuclear war. And there is mass devastation of human populations as a result of this. So it is set far in the future. And in this future, humans have been turned into mute apes. And in fact, the chimpanzees, the orangutans and the gorillas are all uh, sentient vocal creatures who run the society. And humans are hunted. One of my favorite scenes of the movie is when the gorillas on horseback are rounding up humans for sport and are posing with humans in the same way that trophy hunters pose with, with the animals that they have killed on, on the savannah. Yeah. And what happens is that the moral lesson that the apes tell each other is one in which it is humans' violence that has driven the devastation of the past. And it needs to be overcome. And under mm-hmm. no circumstances are humans allowed to be educated because, my goodness, what would it lead to in the future?
1: You know, your interests are so broad. You, you study masculinity. You look at evolutionary biology. You're interested in animal behavior, as well as popular culture and in even science fiction. And I was wondering if, um, having completed this project, You see the present moment a bit differently, or how how does it maybe shape the way you see what's happening now? There's so much going on.
2: I think there's a couple of things I might point to. One is that the one difference between the 1960s, the 1970s, and today is the rise of professional scientific journalism. There is a way that people today have a tendency to think about engagement of scientists with a more general public as being something that some people should do, but real scientists don't popularize. Yeah, And I think that that's a shame. I think that there's it's clear to me from my project that writing in an accessible way for scientists has a fundamental effect on the way that average Americans think about and and interact with the world. And I would love to see more engagement of scientists with the general public. And I would love to see a way in which the general public was more interested in listening to scientists in the first place. So both Mm -hmm. of those things. And I think also one of the ways that I think about history is as a tool for denaturalizing the present, mm. for understanding that the way that we work now was neither obvious nor necessary, mm. given the contingencies of the past. And so we can use history as a way to conceptualize how we might move forward. Yeah. And for me, one of the important lessons of the book was that although evolutionary theory and thinking of humans in an evolutionary light has been used to dehumanize some people as less valuable than others. It has also been used in the service of a more redemptive and inclusive vision of what humans could be in the future.
1: Yeah. Erica Milam, thank you so much for talking with me.
2: Thank you so much.
1: That's it for today. The music was composed by Zabrat. Make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website for podcast links and other exploration related stuff. And if you get the chance, please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps make the show visible to new listeners. And if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment, feel free to contact me at Time to Eat the Dogs. That's one word, lowercase at gmail.com See you next week.